Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Philip Reef said in The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher, Barbarians are people without historical memory. Barbarism is the real meaning of radical contemporaneity. Released from all authoritative pasts, we progress towards barbarism, not away from it. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is history, and why does it matter? How can studying history help us understand how we got where we are today? How can studying history help us be more human? The classical education of the pagans that was transformed by the church attempted to inculcate in each new generation an idea of what a human being should be through constantly having examples of ideal humanity set in front of it. And by studying the great deeds of great men, this was a culture with a definite and distinctive goal, to pass on the wisdom of the past and to produce another generation with the same ideals and values based on its vision of what a human being was. That was Martin Cothran from another quote from Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. Today on the Wittenberg Hour, we are going to explore history and why it matters. As we begin here, let's take a little quiz. See how well you do. What happened in 2166 BC? How about 1446 BC? 931 BC? 775 BC? 560 BC? 509 BC. What happened from 431 to 404 BC? 323 BC. 44 BC. 40 BC. 27 BC to 14 AD. 2 BC, 180 AD, 325 AD. What happened in 325 AD? How about 333 AD? What happened in 476 AD? 1054 AD? 1066 A.D. October 31st, 1517. April 18th, 1521. June 25th, 1530. 1789. 1914 to 1918, 
1939 to 1945. 1-1-6-6-B-C-Abram-was-born-in-14-46-B-C-the-Exodus-occurred-in-9-31-B-C-Israel-divided-under-Rehoboam-1775-B-C-saw-the-first-Olympiad-in-5-60-B-C-Homer
your quiz at the beginning of this episode contained many events. And if you pause a moment to look at those events, you can start to see connections between them. And if you don't see connections right now, hopefully by the end of this episode, you will begin to see them. We're going to highlight three events today from your quiz at the beginning of this episode. And we're going to look at those three events and ask, what does this mean about each of them? The first event for our historical memory is the fall of the Roman Empire. We all know from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, or Isaac Newton, that what goes up must come down. So if the Roman Empire fell, it must have risen. Rome was a republic before it was an empire. The Republic, if you remember from our quiz, was founded in 509 BC and lasted until Caesar Augustus assumed power in 27 BC. The Western Roman Empire then lasted until 476 AD. We shall not include in our discussion day today the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire. So what made Rome great, and what caused her demise? Different scholars will give you different answers, but we can look to the following as reasons why the empire grew. There was an emphasis on the family, specifically the patriarchy. The state existed to serve the family. Unlike the Greeks, who venerated youth and strength, the Romans venerated age and wisdom, experience, determination, and responsibility. There was a certain resistance to change. The Romans upheld tradition, and this was a strength. When the Romans conquered people, they made them Romans. They passed on, quote-unquote, the Roman way. Now, Lest we venerate the Romans unduly, let us consider how the abandonment of these ideals led to the decline and fall of the empire. Jerome Carcopino says in The Daily Life in Ancient Rome, quote, whether because of voluntary birth control or because of impoverishment of the stock, many Roman marriages at the end of the first and the beginning of the second century were childless, end quote. He continues further, quote, the feminism which triumphed in imperial times brought more in its train than advantage and superiority. By copying men too closely, the Roman women succeeded more rapidly in emulating man's vices than in acquiring his strength. End quote. The women were donning helmets and abandoning the bearing and caring of children. Carcapino says, How far removed from the inspiring picture of the Roman family in the heroic days of the Republic. The unassailable rock was cracked and crumbled away on every side. Then, meaning in 
the time of the Republic, the women were strictly subjected to the authority of her lord and master. Now, into the Empire, she is his equal, his rival, if not his imperatrix. Then, in the times of the Republic, husband and wife had all things in common. Now, in the times of the Empire, their property is almost entirely separate. Then, in the time of the Republic, she took pride in her own fertility. Then, in the time of the Empire, the decline of the Empire, she fears it. Then, she was faithful. Now, she is capricious and depraved. Divorces then were rare. Now they follow so close on each other's heels that, as Marshall says, marriage has become merely a form of legalized adultery. End quote. She who marries so often does not marry. She is an adulteress by form of law. Now, Rome didn't fall in a day. It was a slow decline and a slow rejection of the things that made them great. The breakdown of the family and the elevation of the individual over the family led to a rejection of the Roman ideal. Though the Roman Empire continued forth in the East as the Byzantine Empire, it too succumbed to the rejection of the Roman ideal and eventually fell in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. So, for better or for worse, Rome fell and time marched on, but not without lasting influence on history forevermore. We've talked about the negative influences. On a positive note, here's what Rome gave the world. A powerful compromise between democracy and aristocracy. A long tradition of citizen government, even during the rule of emperors. A military ideal emulated by nations ever since. An example of almost two centuries of peace. The spread of Latin and Greek learning to the hinterlands. And the spread of Christianity. Now, if we fast forward a few years, skipping all sorts of extremely vital history, we get to the French Revolution. What do we know about the French Revolution? Well, the French Revolution began with the meeting of the Legislative Assembly, the States General, in May of 1789, when the French government was already in crisis. The Bastille was stormed in July of that same year. The revolution became steadily more radical and ruthless, with power increasingly in the hands of the Jacobins and Robespierre. Louis XVI's execution in January 1793 was followed by Robespierre's reign of terror. The revolution failed to produce a stable form of republican government, and after several different forms of administration, the last, the Directory, was overthrown by Napoleon in 1799. How did we get there? Well, prior to the French Revolution was the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil War. Prior to that 
was this little event in 1517 that got people to thinking about a lot of different things. But the Thirty Years' War lasted from 1618 to 1648. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there, but the Thirty Years' War and the Great Plague prior to the Thirty Years' War produced some of our greatest hymns, right? Among them, the King and Queen of the Lutheran Chorales, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, and O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright. On October 26th each year, we commemorate Philip Nikolai, Johann Hiermann, and Paul Gerhardt. Philip Nikolai lost 1,300 parishioners over a six-month time period during the Great Plague. But before we get lost in a hymn study, let us get back to getting to the French Revolution. The times were volatile and sometimes strange. At the end of the day, or at the end of the 30 years of days, some European thinkers started to believe that religion is essentially dangerous and divisive. In their minds, there were two options. One, absorb religion into the state, or two, dissociate religion from the state, relegating the scriptures to individual interpretation and church membership to individual choice. Depending on your point of view, the Thirty Years' War was a conflict of nation-states and or it was a conflict between churches. These thinkers, many times known as Enlightenment thinkers, held up man's reason as a replacement for any sort of religion or God. Now, let's back up one step here in case I jump too quickly <laughs> to the punchline of, of that, the connection between the Thirty Years' War and the Enlightenment thinkers. During the Thirty Years' War, you were the religion of your prince. And this was as the nation states fought back and forth, the different princes would take over and lose and take over and lose and take over and lose. And so if you were in a particular area and your prince was Lutheran, then you were Lutheran. If your prince was conquered by a Roman Catholic prince, then you became Roman Catholic. So whatever your prince was, that's what you were. And so you see how this conflation of, of religion and the state became problematic. So these Enlightenment thinkers, like Immanuel Kant, said, Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. Have courage to use your own reason is the motto of the Enlightenment. So what would be a problem with this statement? Think about the explanation of the third article. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. Right? We as Lutherans have this understanding of reason that departs quite distinctly from the way reason was understood by the Enlightenment thinkers. 
So the French Revolution, which occurred from 1789 to 1799, ushered in modernism. Now, modernism has this idea that God is dead, that man solves all problems, where Rome abandoned an adherence to tradition, modernism obliterated tradition altogether. Modernism trades one teacher, tradition, for another teacher, whether it's one own vanity or caprice or the ambitions of the intellectual elite. Modernism's fingers are everywhere. Modernism covers solid oak wood floors with linoleum. Modernism insists that the state must teach all the children so they learn the quote-unquote correct information. The state, modernism says, must protect children from their surroundings. Surroundings like other children. Surroundings like their parents. The Politically Incorrect Guide to Western Civilization by Anthony Esselin says it this way. What a fascinating century the 19th is. If the measure of a culture lies in its machines and money, not the men and their thoughts, then that century saw progress unmatched by all the centuries before. Consider what life was like at the onset. America is a confederation of states hugging the shores of the Atlantic, wary of its old enemy England and just as wary of its new friend France. The streets of Paris run with blood. They call it democracy. Italy is a checkerboard of dukedoms, most of them owing allegiance to foreign powers. The Pope is the temporal ruler in the region around Rome. Most Europeans and Americans live on or near farms. Nails are made at the blacksmith's shop by hand. Mary Wollstonecraft is one of a few people to argue for the full educational and political equality of women. The sun never sets on the British Empire, yet for most people in Europe and America, such things as oranges and pineapples are still exotic to be purchased for holidays. If you get sick, you're doctor may bleed you to drain off the excess sanguine humor. George Washington, in 1799, fell ill of what was probably strep throat. His doctor bled him. He died. The intelligentsia believed in the perfectibility of man. This is to come about through proper education and art. You ride a horse to get from Philadelphia to New York. It takes two days. People in Vienna are listening to Mozart. At the close of the 19th century, or near the close of the 19th century, America stretches from the Florida Keys to the Bering Strait, with territories from Cuba to the Philippines. She is about to become the most powerful nation the world has seen. France has muddled through the century, cast off her imperial government, and become a republic. Europeans more and more assume that democracy can work and is just. The vote becomes more than a tool to secure justice. It becomes the desired object in itself, regardless of how it is used. Monarchs lose almost all authority. Italy is, or pretends to be, a united nation. 
So are Greece, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Poland, carved up by Prussia and Russia, recalls her heroic past when she alone defended Europe from the Turks with pride and longing. We are on the brink of nationalist fervor and horror. New York is a city of over 4 million people. Farms produce more food than ever thanks to technological innovations, the harvester, the reaper, the, the thresher. So people move to the cities, black with the smoke of factories and their wondrous array of electric-powered machines. Women vote in many local and state elections in America. The first age of feminism is in full swing. It already shows signs of enmity against the family and traditional morality and of favoring the collective hive over local and individual liberty. Britain is an aging tiger. Everyone's had an orange. Louis Pasteur has revolutionized medicine, proving that disease-causing germs, the word means seeds, thrive in certain conditions and can be eliminated chemically. He establishes the connection between disease and fermentation, or the spoiling of food. It's a tremendous breakthrough for the farmer, the brewer, the vintner, the grocer, and the people who can enjoy clean food shipped from a distance. Joseph Lister has discovered the principles of antisepsis, and European hospitals, once death traps run by the scientists, now actually save lives. The intelligentsia still believe in the perfectibility of man, but ominously, it is now to come through economic and political revolution. Marx and Engels have rewritten history to prove it. Thankfully, there are some sober exceptions to this attitude. Twain, Melville, Dostoevsky. You ride a train from Philadelphia to New York. It takes a couple of hours. You might even drive your automobile, powered by gasoline or steam. People, in America anyway, are listening to Scott Joplin, in their own homes too, on the phonograph, in a room lit by an electric bulb, until the telephone rings. Now begins the strange development, unique in the history of man, by which we conquer space and are separated from our neighbors by a vast indifference. We think we're the first generation to feel that the world is changing fast, but the people of the 19th century saw it coming on. And because they hadn't jettisoned their classical and modern education, for them, quote-unquote, modern, meant the Renaissance and later, they had the intellectual resources to, to ask searching questions about it. They asked better questions about technology and its place in human life, about men and women, about the franchise, and about the dignity of work. They asked better questions about the glory and the shame of cultures from the East, India, Arabia, China, Japan. We are the inheritors of their victories. Many of these are easy enough to see. We drive in them, sleep in them, write letters with them, and talk to distant, close relations on them. The troubles are harder to see, because they too are ours, and we prefer to look the other way. In 1989, or a bit before, as these things are rarely relegated to one moment, things changed again. While modernism told us God was dead and man could solve all problems, science proved it. Science was everything. It proved things we didn't know needed proving. And we ended up with Darwin, Hitler, Margaret Sanger, and a host of other characters. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. The events leading to it and the events proceeding from it ushered in 
postmodernism. Postmodernism gave us things like stream of consciousness writing. If it feels good, do it, Nike adds, and no fault divorce. Postmodernism tells us that our own experience is paramount to any other's experience, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Everything is subjective, and at long last, truth is whatever I think it is or you think it is. Now, we have bopped through history quickly and have taken a 5,000-foot view of some very critical events that still very much have an impact on you. They all influenced art. They influenced writing. They influenced education. They influenced religion. In the French Revolution, man solves all problems. God is dead. Industrialism is king. With the fall of the Berlin Wall, man's experience is all that matters. These events, we know, do not happen in a vacuum. They don't happen in isolation. As we talked with the fall of the Roman Empire, this didn't happen in a day. It was a slow climb, and though the descent was a little bit faster than the climb, it didn't happen overnight. Many of these events, as you look through history, are like the frog in the, in the boiling water. And the water is beginning to heat up. The frog doesn't notice it until it's too late. So this is why we look at history. This is why history matters. This is why studying history can help us be more human. History shows us the ideal. History also shows us when the ideal fails. As Martin Cothran said, the classical education of the pagans that was transformed by the church attempted to inculcate in each new generation an idea of what a human being should be through constantly having examples of ideal humanity set in front of it and by studying the great deeds of great men. This was a culture with a definite and distinctive goal to pass on the wisdom of the past and to produce another generation with the same ideals and values, ideals and values based on its vision of what a human being was. And we know, as we study history, standing on the truth of Scripture, we know who man is and what man is. When we look at history through that lens, the truth of the fact that man was created in God's image— and he still has that image of God, imagio Dei, but also that man is fallen. We can look through history and see when we depart from those two truths, that man is created in the image of God and man is fallen, when we depart from that, things go awry. 
The book worth reading for episode 46 is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Western Civilization by Anthony Esselin. If you are not familiar with the Politically Incorrect Guide or PIG series, you should really check them out. This one on Western Civilization by Dr. Esselin is particularly fantastic. Here is the preface. Christianity, Judaism, dead white males, old-fashioned morality, the traditional family, tradition itself. These are the baits noirs of the elites. They are the pillars of political incorrectness. Together, they constitute that thing called Western civilization. Political correctness, at its heart, is the effort to dissolve the foundation on which American and European culture has been built. It has been a demolition project. Undermine Western civilization in whatever way possible and build a brave new world from the rubble. Multiculturalism has nothing to do with genuine love for natives of the Australian outback or the monks of Tibet. It is an effort to crowd out our own cultural traditions. Radical secularization in the name of separation of church and state aims to burn our religious roots. Public education, purveying convenient untruths about our past, the Middle Ages were miserable, the ancients were simpletons, the church is oppressive, has sought to rob us of our heritage. Misrepresentations of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and the last 200 years served to create an illusion of unvarying progress made possible by abandoning the old ways. And that is the central myth that justifies the continued discarding of our religious, intellectual, and moral traditions. Once our culture is untethered from Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem, once we've forgotten about or dismissed Moses, Plato, and Jesus, then the PC platoons in academia, government, and the media hope to steer the ship of culture to new shores. Because political correctness is a project of destruction, the message has not always been consistent. Either Shakespeare was a subversive, closeted homosexual, or he was an ignorant chauvinist. Either Jesus was a non-judgmental hippie, or he was a preacher of hate. But this much has been consistent. Anything that reeks of the West is therefore politically incorrect and must be denigrated or condemned. For those of us who love the West, it's a daunting battle. The other side has the mainstream media, the Ivy League, the political classes, and a lot more money. Thankfully, on our side, we've got thousands of years of history and some pretty big guns with names like Aristotle, Augustine, Burke, and Eliot. The bad ideas touted today as revolutionary and enlightened are hardly new. The West's great minds have battled relativism, atheism, materialism, and state worship for millennia. The great ideas can hold their own against anything today's most renowned women's studies professor can devise. A fascinating thing about this book is that the copyright date is 2008. Dr. Esselin, when he wrote that in 2008, could not have predicted but sadly, probably could have foreseen where we sit today. Check out the Politically Incorrect Guide to Western Civilization and read 
what PC professors don't want you to know. Our word worth repeating for episode 46 is history. History is a noun from the Latin historia and from the Greek knowing, learned, and to inquire, to explore, or to learn by inspection or inquiry. Webster's first definition in his 1828 Dictionary of the English Language is an account of facts, particularly of facts respecting nations or states, a narration of events in the order in which they happened, with their causes and effects. History differs from annals. Annals relate simply the facts and events of each year in strict chronological order without any observations of the analyst. History regards less strictly the arrangement of events under each year and admits the observations of the writer. This distinction, however, is not always regarded with strictness. Now, if we're to look at the etymology of the word history, we see it showing up in the late 14th century, meaning a relation of incidents, whether true or false. It came from the old French, meaning story or chronicle or history. In Middle English, history is not differentiated from story with story being a sense of narrative record of past events. It was probably first attested late in the 15th century, meaning the recorded events of the past. As a branch of knowledge, history came from the late 15th century, meaning an historical play or drama came from the 1590s. This sense of systematic account without reference to time of a set of natural phenomena came from the 1560s, and it's now obsolete except in natural history, which we see as late as the 1880s in published county histories in the United States. They routinely included history chapters, natural history chapters, with lists of birds and fish and illustrations of local slugs and freshwater clams, meaning an eventful career, a past worthy of note, such as a woman with a history, comes to us from 1852. And to make history, or to be notably engaged in public events, came from 1862. So we see this word history came to us from the Latin, from the narrative of past events, from the account or tale or story, from the Greek historia, a learning or knowing by inquiry, an account of one's inquiries, one's knowledge, account, historical account, record, or narrative. And at different times, this word has had a relation to 
specific dates. And at other times, it's just a narrative record. But when we think of history, we need to make sure that we don't forget the story. And I appreciate what Noah Webster points out in his 1828 dictionary that history is different from an annal in that in history, the writing of and the observation of the writer of history, the historiographer, is an essential component of the writing of history. History is more than just the recording of dates and facts and the memorization of dates and facts. History is the story and the observations that accompany the events and the dates throughout time. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.